Welcome to the Institute of Men podcast, where we are figuring out what kind of men we want to be and pursuing that vision relentlessly for the rest of our lives. We derive wisdom from what is ancient, traditional, and from the greatest men in history. My name is Keaton Tucker, and I want to thank you for listening. Today, we are talking about Athanasius and the Nicene Creed. Then we will go into our comments section, and we'll be finishing with today's gospel coming from Matthew chapter 15. If you are new to the podcast or you just haven't hit that subscribe button, go ahead and do that now. And if you would be so kind, leave a five-star review. And if you want to get into heaven, leave a comment. It is guaranteed entrance into heaven if you leave a comment on your favorite listening app. Thank you for listening and supporting the Institute of Men. All right, I hope you are doing well. Today, we're going to be talking about a man and an event that I do hope to do justice to. I really had a lot of fun researching this topic and reading about this man in particular. I said his name in the intro. His name is Athanasius. Uh, But I also, when I was writing, I wanted to share everything that I had learned, but I ran the risk of getting lost in the details. There were a lot of details that go into this time period. There's emperors and bishops and old names and different controversies. There's all sorts of stuff that goes into it. And I was like, well, I don't want to get lost in the details and make Athanasius just a side piece to all that went on. But I really want to be able to highlight exactly what he did and why he was such a great man of God and why he is so important to the Christian faith. So I'm going to do my best to do justice to this man and to this topic. But... I may not do that, so I'll put all of my resources down below. There are plenty of others that I'm not even going to reference that you could go and read. This is a man you should know about, Um, but again, I'm going to do my absolute best. And if you missed this in the intro, my name is Keaton Tucker. I started this podcast a while ago, and it was originally built off the question my father asked me when I was 23. 23 years old. He said, son, do you know what kind of man you want to be? And I was like, no, I I don't know what kind of man I want to be. And he said, I would figure that out and I would pursue that vision relentlessly for the rest of your life. And I was like, okay, yes, absolutely. I did. And so I began a journey of trying to figure out what kind of man I want to be. And over the years of trying to figure out what kind of man I want to be, and um, as I've grown stronger in faith and I've read about Christian history and I've read the scripture and I've read about other great men throughout history. I've kind of narrowed it down to like, I want to be a man who's a man of the Christian faith, of the historic Christian faith, who's a man of God, who's a saint, who's a man of war, all those kinds of things. And so this podcast really pulls, like I said in the intro, it pulls from what is ancient, traditional, and from the greatest men in history. And today, I think we're going to be talking about something that's ancient, something that's traditional, and something that is from one of the greatest men in history. I hope today, after listening to this episode, you have a deeper appreciation for the men and the women who have handed down and defended the Christian faith for the last 2,000 years. Like, I really, really hope you do. I know the more I study church history, the more I study Christian history, the more I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm more and more impressed with the people of the past. And I told my wife I was going to pick on her because I was researching and writing and I was getting all excited about Athanasius and I'm telling her about this. And she just looks at me and she goes, I'm, I'm sorry, honey, that's, that's just not for me. I just, that's not my thing. That's your thing. You love those. I just, I don't find it that interesting. I was like, okay, fair enough. 
and she tried to give it like a she tried to make a comparison and I was being kind of a dingus and I pretended I was interested in whatever she had brought up. I don't even remember what it was because I wasn't actually interested. I was just being a dingus like husbands do. But a lot, I think a lot of us have kind of that uh, inclination towards the past. We're content with our individual relationship with God and maybe in our church family, wherever we're in church. and But we don't think too much about the past and what has been handed down to us over and over and over centuries. And I think that is to our great shame. But I, I, I was also somebody who was like that. I couldn't, I, there was a time in my life where I couldn't give a rip about what was in front of what was behind me. I was like, I just want to go ahead. I want to forget the past. They were all, they were all backwards back there. I suffered from what would you C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, except I was also a teenager. So I was teenager snobbery in early 20 something snobbery and late 20 something snobbery and on top of chronological snobbery. And now I'm just probably just snobbery. That's a lot of times I've said that word. My goodness, Keaton, get back on track. But I do hope listening to this podcast, especially about this man, Athanasius, I hope you come to understand that the faith you have today is a gift given to you and handed down to you. You know, the Greek word for faith is the Greek word pistis, I believe is how you say it. And it, in its original, you know, the Greek language, it connotes a gift. Jesus Jesus said that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them. So God reveals himself, and then he gives the gift of faith to accept it. Um, But he also, someone else probably shared the faith with you. It was either from your parents or from another faithful Christian at some point. Somebody else shared the faith with you. And that has been happening for 2,000 years. I actually found this great quote. I'm going to read it now, and then I'm going to read it at the end of the podcast, because I think it will give you a greater perspective on historic and global Christianity. It's a, here's the quote. Faith is a personal act, the free response of the human person to the initiative of God who reveals himself. But faith is not an isolated act. No one can believe alone, just as no one can live alone. You have not given yourself faith as Excuse me. You have not given yourself faith as you have not given yourself life. The believer has received faith from others and should hand it on to others. Our love for Jesus and our neighbor impels us to speak to others about our faith. Each believer is thus a link in the great chain of believers. I cannot believe without being carried by the faith of others, and by my faith, I can help support others in their faith. That line right there, each believer is thus a link in the great chain of believers. That's so good. And today we're going to talk about what I believe is one of the greater links in Christian history. And I'm going to start this way. If I were to ask you, why do you believe that God is Trinity? That God is three parts, one substance. We've got all of our really interesting, silly symbols for our training like he's like an egg you got the shell the egg white the yolk you know we've got he's like water he's ice water and uh, steam whatever the other things we use to try to describe the trinity if i were to ask you why do you believe that god is trinity why do you believe that he's three parts one substance three persons one god you might respond with keaton you silly goose i know that god is trinity for the same reason i know jesus loves me for the bible tells me so and i would reply that you are sort of correct but also not really correct 
You can certainly know that God is Trinity from the great passages of Scripture, such as John 1. If you go read John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And you could be like, okay, there's Trinity right there. But you could also argue that he is not Trinity if you used the right passages. This is called proof texting. You take a passage and you you just figure out which passage it is to make it prove your point. And you're like, they, see, there it is. There, there it is. You just leave it floating out there. And people do this to support whatever position they have. And I'm gonna, I'm, I'll show you where I'm going with this. The Bible can be used in such a way as to make it say anything that you want it to say, you know, to a degree. You can't make it say certain things, of course. But the Bible can be used in such a way as to make it say anything, which is why some churches have pride flags on their doors and other churches teach that Christians are about to be raptured so that God can reestablish the literal kingdom of Israel in the Middle East. And I'm, like, I'm not kidding. There are... It's, large, it's pretty much relegated to North America, to America specifically. It's called dispensationalism. It's it's stupid. <laughs> That's all. I'll leave it at that. I'm not kidding. There's like people who believe that, and they're all they're using the exact same Bible, and they will use that Bible. They it's called proof texting. It's a terrible way to read the Bible. And what we're about to examine is a series of events from church history that established the doctrine of the Trinity as true and unchangeable during a time when someone used the Bible to argue that it was not true. And this event lasted well over 60 years, and church doctrine on the Trinity, before it was made explicit in the creed, it almost looked like it was not going to happen. Like there, if this, if what we're talking about today does not happen, if St. Athanasius does not rise to the cause, along with other bishops, there's a good chance that the primary doctrine of the Christian faith from 325 on is Unitarian, kind of, because also, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, God would not have allowed that to happen because God is Trinity. That is true. And whatever God has not planted, he will uproot at some point. He just, that's what he made that promise. Every seed that my father has not planted will be uprooted. Leave them alone. So this event, it lasted well over 60 years. It split the church and it's considered one of the most divisive times in church history. But one man who would suffer much would not allow false teaching to prevail. And by his efforts, the false teaching was removed and the Nicene Creed was established forever in the minds of Christians that God is Trinity. So now before, like before we go on, before I, because I just made kind of a bold statement, the Christians believed before 325 AD, which was when, when the Nicene Creed was first written, they believed that God was Trinity, but it was, it was, that was like the thing. That was well-established, but it wasn't made explicit. So when it was challenged using the same scripture, something had to be done. So they Christians believed that God was Trinity, that it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But because it wasn't explicit in writing as a confession, it was vulnerable to people like Arius who decided to change Christian doctrine based on his own interpretation of the scripture. And it, it became quite the thing. So yeah, that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the Arian controversy or the Arian heresy. It began with a dispute between the Bishop of Alexandria and one of his underlings, Arius. And to understand it, we need to back up just a little bit earlier. Earlier, earlier theologians, so throughout church history, we're talking 325 AD, this all kind of starts happening. 
for a couple hundred years, there's just there, Christians are just trying to survive being persecuted and ousted, and the gospel is spreading all over. And they've got these house churches, and some have, some get have a little bit bigger, and some are underground. There's also they're just trying to survive. And when the persecution ends, then they can start work, working on apologetics and defending the divinity of Jesus. And the strongest argument that they came up with for the divinity of Jesus, because they're trying to they're trying to reach people who are pagan, who have a lot of gods, and they're trying to say no, there's one God. And so they're trying to reach all these people and explain to Jesus, and they're trying to evangelize and convert people and and bring them into the faith. They they come up with the doctrine of the Logos about Jesus, <clears throat> taken from John chapter 1 primarily. And then they were also able to see that from like the great philosophers, Aristotle and Plato. And it was the best way and explain Jesus' divinity to people who are not yet not yet Christians. It was the Logos, the doctrine of the Logos. So in John 1, when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, that Word is the word Logos. And there was, um, it it held, uh, it had Greek philosophy implications, which is why John used it, because it said um, the Greek Logos and the understanding of the Roman gods was, the Logos was the God that held everything together. He was the ineffable God. And God, and John basically says, his name is Jesus. And he was with God the Father in the beginning. That's basically what he was saying. And so they come up with the doctrine of the Logos. And a man named Arius took that doctrine and he began to teach that Jesus was created by God the Father. He was not one with God the Father. He was created by God the Father, which means that Jesus was not co-eternal. And you might think that's like a really silly thing for people to even argue. What are theologians wasting our time for talking about that? Shouldn't they just be worshiping God, doing good works, and praying and then, you know, maybe get a real job instead of arguing over these words. Shouldn't they just be doing that? Well, hold on, hold on. This man, he starts to teach people that Jesus was created by God the Father. So he was divine, but he was not co-eternal. He was of a different substance of God than uh, God the Father. And he was under the, this man Arius is under the authority of the Bishop of Alexandria, whose name was Alexander. So he's Alexander of Alexandria. And at this time in history, all of Christianity was, you know, under the areas pastored by bishops. Um, and the bishops, the name uh, his Alexander, he, he had a job, you know, he's the shepherd. He's the lead He's the pastor of this whole area, and so he's got to do what a good pastor does. He begins to engage this person under his charge and correct his false doctrine. he That's his job. So he starts engaging with Arius, and they start having these heated debates. And each of them had their favorite proof text from the Bible to establish their position. So listen to this quote from the book, The Story of Christianity. Each of the two parties had a list of their favorite proof texts from the Bible and the logical reasons that seemed to make the opponent's position untenable. Arius would argue that Alexander denied Christian monotheism. Alexander retorted that Arius denied the divinity of the word and therefore Jesus. So one of Arius's, that's from the quote, they're just like they're both proof texting to try to make their point. And Arius, one of his favorite proof texts was from Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31. And this is what Proverbs 8 says. It says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, and when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains 
had been shaped before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields and the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens I was there, when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies from above, when he established the fountains of the deep. And it goes on and on. And it says, Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. So in, in context, if you were to read the whole chapter, this is a passage about the wisdom, about wisdom. God possessed wisdom at the beginning. If you remember, I said the logos in Greek philosophy that they used to help communicate the doctrine of the logos, the divinity of Jesus as pre-existing before time, was the wisdom that held all things together. And so Arian just took this and said, see, he, he was created by God. And then he would go over to like Colossians chapter one, or he actually, he would just call it the letter to the, that Paul wrote to the Colossians. And he said, see, um, he's the firstborn of all creation. And he, he would just proof text over and over and over again. Here's another quote from another, a different historian. But some misgivings were registered as it was realized that Proverbs 8:22 through 31 could be interpreted to subordinate the personified word of God. In fact, this passage was the beginning of Arianism, interpreted in light of certain philosophical assumptions. God, they said, was absolutely one, the only true, unbegotten, only eternal, the only one without beginning, the only true, only one who had immortality, the only wise, the only good, the only potentiate, the principle of creation. God the Father did not share any of these qualities, even with the word. So the Arianism was distinguishing, they're saying like, God the Father did not share any of the qualities of God with the word who was incarnated as Jesus. Right? And you're like, wow, this is really nerdy theology stuff. And I'm like, yes, it is. But this is one of the most important times in history. And it's the re and this, this debate is why you and I know that God is Trinity. <clears throat> as long as it was between those two, between Arius and Alexander, as long as it was between the bishop and his underling, as long as Alexander was doing a good job pastoring this young man and this young man submitted to authority and trusted his bishop, everything was fine. But Arius decided to usurp authority and he began teaching publicly that Jesus was created by God the Father. That's like, he just, he decided, I'm not going to listen to the person over me. I'm going to rebel and I'm going to do what he has asked me not to do and I'm going to teach something that is false. Now, when we get to Athanasius, you're going to be like, because I said Athanasius helped led the way to resolve this thing. You're going to see several times where Athanasius is exiled or banished by either emperor, by the emperor pretty much. And he never once rebels against the emperor. He just takes his word and he does it. Even though he's like, you are wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. He never once rebels. You will not find a pastor or a, a passage of scripture where God ordains rebellion or permits rebellion to establish his purposes. He makes this clear with Moses. He makes this very clear with Absalom and David. And in the New Testament, he says, submit to authority, because like we're going to talk about at the beginning, whatever God has not planted, he will uproot. So when we get to Athanasius, you need to remember, he never once rebelled. He argued, he debated, he wrote letters, he drew people to his cause, but he always submitted to the will of the authority, even when it meant he was exiled five times. I'm getting ahead of myself. So as long as this matter between Arius and his 
um, bishop, as long as it stays private, as long as they debate, as long as there's no rebellion, everything is fine. So you might be wondering, like, what's the big deal? It's a really small distinction. This is nerdy theology stuff. This couldn't possibly affect anything about anyone. What's the big deal? And here's our big our big theme for today. Small things become big things very, very, very quickly. This was the stepping stone to the return of paganism with its multitude of gods. Arius had two students who went on to form a new school of thought on Jesus that said he wasn't like God at all. He was totally dissimilar to God. That and that he was more, he was almost like Hercules to Zeus, is basically what these guys they took hit, they took Arius's doctrine, they expanded it just a little bit. And when you take a little bit, a little bit of step off and it expands and expands and expands, before you know it, you've got pride flags on church, on churches. One small distinction, and it had been, had if it had been left unchecked, would have subverted all of Christianity for a longer period of time. And even this little thing, even though it almost subverted Christianity. So in um, Arius starts publicly teaching his bishop, Alexander says, okay, you know what? I, now I have to enforce some consequences, consequences that are laid out in first and second Timothy and in Titus. And you could even argue in Corinthians where as a bishop, he has to now remove this man from any position of authority. So he, he, he removes him. So to try to stop Arius from teaching publicly, Alexander, as the bishop with the one of authority over a region in the church, he removes Arius from his teaching positions. He removes him from the church because he was teaching things that are untrue. And so Arius, instead of, again, submitting, he doubles down as all men with zeal for what they believe is true. Like he doubles down. Rebellion against authority is deep in the heart of man. I'll tell you what, especially when that man thinks he has knowledge that nobody else has. Arius systematized this view that that Jesus was created by God, and then he popularized it. He was he's kind of brilliant that way. So he systematizes it and he popularized it by putting it in music. So he starts preaching, but he wrote hymns that people could sing. And when you sing, you're typically not thinking about what you're saying. You're just kind of repeating the words. It's kind of the way, I mean, give it to him. He's kind of brilliant that way. And he popularizes it through music. And he was so effective that he split the church and he made the, and he made the controversy so public that Constantine the emperor had to, he had no choice. He had to call for a council of bishops to settle the matter. Like that's how divisive this argument became. It started in a room with a bishop and a young man, and it became so controversial that the emperor of the empire, like gigantic empire had to call for a council of bishops to settle the matter. Like imagine if you and I were in a room and we got in an argument and I'll let you listener be the authority. And I disagreed with you and we were having an argument in a private room. And that argument got so big that the president called us and was like, all right, you guys are causing too much problem in my empire. We need to settle this. Okay. Now this podcast is not, this episode in particular is not about Constantine, but I've mentioned Constantine as somebody who called, he's an emperor who called for a council of bishops, which is a very Christian thing to do. And I've, you know, there's some people who are like, Constantine, you know, made Christianity the public, the official religion of Rome, which is not exactly true at all. He actually just legalized it. Some say he became Christian. And I'm going to say, I don't, I actually think Constantine was just a politician. I've read, I've read a lot about him 
And, and especially in reading this podcast or getting ready for this podcast, I'm, I think, so he got baptized before he died, but I think he was just a politician. Like he was, he made decisions based on political maneuvering. He also seems to me like a Cyrus from Isaiah 45. Go read the first like eight verses of Isaiah 45. God says that Cyrus is an instrument of God for the sake of his people, Israel. And I think Constantine was a instrument of God for the sake of his church. Either way, whatever, whatever you think about Constantine, Constantine calls the Nicene council. And you'll see why in a little bit, why I think he's just, he's just a politician. So Arius, this is a council of bishops. Arius is not a bishop, so he cannot attend the council to defend his views. So he sends a representative named Eusebius. So this man, Arius, not a bishop, has convinced a bishop that he is correct. And so when Eusebius presents his arguments, there's this gigantic uproar. It's it's like gigantic uproar and a lot of arguing. And the bishops begin quoting passages of scripture at his arguments, which he refutes with other passages of scripture because it wasn't enough. And he was able to refute using his own scriptural quotations because proof texting is the worst way to argue. My goodness. So here's another quote from the story of Christianity, uh, a history book. At first, the assembly sought to do this through a series of passages of scripture to refute his arguments. But it soon became evident that limiting itself to biblical text, the council would not be able to reject Arianism because they had their own text to quote. That is when it was decided a creed needed to be formulated, and this became known as the Nicene Creed. Now, uh, quote ended, some people are not even aware that there's such thing as a Nicene Creed, and some people will think that it's purposeless because we have the Bible. Well, I just read, they were quoting scripture at each other and it wasn't working. Some people reject all creeds because they believe that creeds are divisive and man-made. And I'm, I'm going to say, I think that's a failure to understand what a creed is and the historical context that the creed came out of. Now, I know there's been a lot of creeds, like especially since like the Protestant Reformation. This one was a really long time ago. Creeds are established, and I said it, I think it's a failure to understand what a creed is. Creeds are established to protect and to make explicit what was only implicit in sacred scripture. So for with the Nicene Creed, for the Nicene Creed specifically, you will not find a passage in the scripture that says definitively or explicitly that God is Trinity. You won't find that. You have to derive it. You have to pull it out. You won't find a passage except for maybe in John where Jesus says, I am, that says explicitly that the Godhead is all equal. That So it's implicit, but a creed, in order to protect what is implicit, makes it explicit. And the Nicene Creed was established as a historical moment to defend Orthodox Christianity from heresy. That's what creeds do. They they protect Christianity from heresy. And what you have at the Council of Nicaea is 318 bishops, give or take, who they are overseeing the entire church at this moment. It's only bishops. It's like bishops, they're deacons. Like they're overseeing the, they are the final they're the like the top level authority in the church. You know, you got the Pope at Rome. And 
They come up with this creed to protect their flock. That's like what the creed is for. And they make distinct that which must be interpreted so that we can all be on the same page. And so things like this don't actually happen. So at the Council of Nicaea in 325, Arius was um, by the bishops. He was officially deemed a heretic. His teachings were condemned. And the Nicene Creed was established. This, it was the first established. It was later established in 381. Or reestablished. And you might think that's like a really harsh thing to do. Shouldn't we just like be nice? And they tried. He tried. Remember Matthew 18, when another man sins against you, and this is a sin against the truth. They settled it in a room and then they tried to get some other people. And then you have to tell it to the church, which means tell it to the highest level authorities in the church, which are the bishops and the bishops. And if he doesn't repent, then, then you have to treat him as if he is no longer part of the family. That's what it says in Matthew 18 and what Paul establishes in first and second Timothy and also in Titus. And so they, they, they name him a heretic and they condemn his teaching. And remember small things become big things very, very quickly. And even though this council of bishops established this creed on the faith, the matter was not quite settled. So you have to understand how popular Arianism was. Arianism was unbelievably popular. It split the church and most people still became Arian even after the beliefs of the creed were established. So you remember Arius sent that man Eusebius as a representative to the council, well, Eusebius was also a great, he, he was political. He wasn't a politician, but he knew how to think politically. And he was able to convince Constantine, who called the council in the first place, that the council was wrong and that Arianism was correct and Arius should be restored and that Athanasius, who he knew was a threat because he's writing letters the whole time, should be exiled along with all of the champions of the Nicene Creed. And the light of the doctrine of the Trinity seemed to be fading. So just, just think about that for a minute. They have a, Constantine calls a council. The council settles the matter. The guy who lost goes to the emperor directly and says, actually, this is what it is. And Constantine, seeing how popular Arianism is, his kids are Arian in their theology, because if you're Caesar of Rome, you get to call yourself a god. And... He sees how popular it is and he goes, okay, we'll just reinstall Arius and say that Arianism is true. <laughs> I think he's just a politician. So it seemed like it was initially settled, but the heretics got the politicians involved again and Arianism had its day. Now this lasted 53, I believe 53 or 56 years. I don't remember exactly the math. Constantine's son, he, so there's a lot of details here, but he had three sons. They all took over and then one son ended up as the sole emperor over the entire empire and he was Arian and he attempted to crush or remove any of the Nicene proponents. Like he didn't want anything that was in in the Nicene creed established as doctrine of the church because he himself was a supposed Arian. And again, I think they're just politicians. This goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, and St. Jerome is quoted as saying the entire world woke up in, from a deep slumber one day and discovered that it had become Arian instead of Christian. And all the Nicene leaders, they were forced out into exile. And then Constantine's son, Constantius, he died. And a man named Julian the Apostate, who was a Christian, becomes emperor. He renounces his Christian faith because he wants to reinstate paganism. 
across the empire and he was tired of all the controversy and he thought if i just reinstate paganism and let the christian and reestablish all of the people who were nicene and all the people who are arian if i just let them all back they'll eventually oust themselves and destroy themselves by arguing and then we can have paganism back small things become big things very 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 quickly and so for a while, the Nicene Creed and Christian orthodoxy as regards the Trinity, the, the, as God is Trinity, was defeated. <clears throat> it was defeated. Uh, you and I, though, know that we are now, we're Trinitarian. We're Trinitarian. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we know this because a man named Athanasius fought to bring back orthodoxy. And when Arius, you remember Arius was, re- he, uh, had been reestablished by, he was removed after the Council of Nicaea. Constantine brings him back in 328 AD. So he's reestablished as a bishop. And in that same year, the champion of orthodoxy was made the Bishop of Alexandria, giving him the authority and the position to defend the doctrine of the Trinity and to reunite the church. So at the same time that Arius is established as the bishop at wherever he was the bishop, Athanasius becomes the bishop at Alexandria, replacing his teacher who had passed, who had started the original argument anyway. Athanasius had become a prolific theologian. He was a writer prior to becoming a bishop. You know, he served uh, the bishop. And his writings centered around the incarnation as the pivotal moment in history. And Athanasius was a short, he was a fiery character. He was short and he was deeply in love with God. Um, Everyone talks about all the quotes I found or descriptions about him mention how short he was. Um, so he was described this way by people who knew him. He was slightly below middle height, which at the time I think means he was 5'5", five five, spare in build, so he was skinny, well-knit, and intensely energetic. He had a finely shaped head, <laughs> which awesome, set off with a thin growth of auburn hair, a small but sensitively mobile mouth, an aquiline nose, and eyes of intense but kindly brilliancy. He had a ready wit was quick in intuition, easy and affable in manner, pleasant in conversation, keen and perhaps somewhat too unsparing in debate, which I just think that is a great way to be described. Unsparing in debate. Get in a debate with this guy, the short little guy, he's going to own you. He's going to own you. And he is now known as the champion of the Nicene Creed because of what of the work that he did. So we've got all uh, you've given I've given you all this background. Arian controversy Bishops are exiled. The the church becomes Arian. The empire becomes Arian. Jesus is no longer seen as um, divine in the mind of a lot of people. He might be somewhat divine, but he's mostly subject to God the Father. He's not co-equal. He's not co-eternal. He's none of the things that you and I take for just regular orthodoxy. And during this whole period of time, before, like, Athanasius is writing letters and he's rallying people to his cause and he's defending orthodoxy and he's making arguments and he's doing everything that he can without being rebellious to make sure that Arianism doesn't have its day in in completely oust Trinitarian orthodoxy. And all of the Arian leaders, so Constantius, um, Eusebius, all those guys, they, they know that this man, Athanasius, is going to be the reason Arianism falls. And so they start spreading rumors about him. He was accused of magic. He was accused of murder. He was accused of chopping people's hands off. And he actually pulled this stunt where someone they accused him of chopping off someone's hands. And so he, he actually is ch- called before the emperor. And he brings the guy they accused him of, of charging, 
cutting his hands off. He brings him with him, but covered. And then he like reveals him and he's like, ha ha ha. Um, and he's exiled five times. So the first time he's exiled is because Const- it's when Constantine is still alive and he believes the rumors enough to force him into his first exile. And he goes willingly. He goes willingly and he continues to write his letters. He continues to do everything he can to defend orthodoxy. But um, then he was restored by Constantius. Um, <clears throat> but then when he gets back to being the Bishop of Alexandria, there's another guy who's claiming that he's the Bishop of Alexandria. And this led to a lot of violence. And so Athanasius, knowing what was best for the church, instead of trying to establish his position, he leaves Alexandria, where he's been established as the bishop once again, and he goes to Rome. And this actually ended up being a really, really good thing for him because while he was in Rome, he was able to commune with the bishop of Rome, who's also known as the pope. And he's able to argue with the, or like show like, hey, this is, this is the threat. This is how big it is. Um, this is why it's such, he basically wins the bishop of Rome, the pope. Uh, he gains his support while he's in Rome. And this allowed Athanasius to return to Alexandria and for 10 years. So this is like the end of his second or third exile. And for 10 years, he had peace and he could war against Arianism, Arianism through his writing and through his preaching. During this, So he's got 10 years of peace. That 10 years of peace is interrupted when Arians convince, I believe it's Constantius, to they've got to get rid of this guy because he's going to ruin Arianism. And so during a mass, during a church service, the emperor sent soldiers into Athanasius's church to arrest him. And he managed to escape to the desert where he lived with the monks for five years. So this is like the third or fourth time this dude is running away. And all he's trying to do is defend Trinitarian doctrine. Um, and when Julian, like I said, was emperor again, he restores paganism. He reinstated all the banned bishops in hopes that Christianity would destroy itself. So Athanasius got to come back and continue the fight. And over enough time, this lasted for, for I believe, it's between 53 and 56 total years that this happened. And this man wrote letters and he was faithful in his church and he prayed and he defended orthodoxy and he did everything he could. He submitted to authority. He didn't try to stir up rebellion. And eventually he won enough bishops that there was another council called in 381, the uh, Council of Constantinople, which reestablished the Nicene Creed and made it very, very clear that Jesus Christ was God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and not made. And for us men in our salvation, he became man. And prior to that, um, there was this also brought in the theological debate of the Holy Spirit was the Holy Spirit God. And Athanasius was able to... Um, you know, his theological work was later completed by other people and they were able to establish that the Holy Spirit was also, and they're making it explicit that the Holy Spirit is also God, uh, you know, of the same substance as God, the father and God, the son, he is co-equal. And then when you get the, you get the definitive, uh, definitive statement that God is Trinity at 381 and Athanasius never got to see it happen. He actually died before the council of 381. He gave his entire life to defending from the time he was a young man until his death, defending the fact that God was Trinity and that he was incarnated, that Jesus Christ was um, not created by God the Father, but he is co-eternal, co-equal with the Father. He gave his entire life to it. He has suffered five exiles. He suffered 
being accused of murder. He has suffered uh, rumors. Like, think about this, this guy's life. But he stood as unyielding as a rock at this, for the entire time for an interpretation that seemed like it was seemingly small. But you see when a seemingly something that seems really, really small becomes big really, really quickly. And it split an empire, it split a church, and it caused violence, and it caused all sorts of stuff. But you can't give up on the truth. And, and Athanasius refused to give up on the truth while simultaneously submitting himself to the authorities, just like Jesus had. I think this is like an, it's, it's a, it's a, he's a beautiful, beautiful story of a man who did everything he could to defend orthodoxy. And we are too, because of him, you and I are Trinitarian Christians. You know, the, the seeds of Arianism still live on in the Unitarian church. There are still some Unitarian churches that deny the Trinity. And that, so that still, uh, lingers a little bit, but for the most part, it's just openly, openly stated that that is heretical. It's not true. It's not, but what I want you to understand, what I'm trying to get you to understand, what I'm hoping you understand from this podcast is that you don't believe that God is Trinity just because the Bible says so. You believe it because men and women, men, in this case, a bold man, did everything he could to defend and hand down the faith without becoming a rebel. Like he did. He, he did everything he can. And you remember that quote from above that we are in a long chain of faithful people. And you and I have an obligation to understand our history and our past and, and the great men that have gone before us so we can learn from them and understand like what's at stake if you don't pay attention to the small stuff. You can go look, figure out what, what was the first step that people took in their churches that led to pride flags being openly celebrated on their churches. Like you can go look. What happens when um, it's allowed to prevail through movies that – there's two people of God and that there's this thing called the rapture where Christians leave and the world goes to hell in a handbasket, which was just not even, not even a thing that Christians believed until John Darby created it in 1830 by a private revelation. You know, Joseph Smith had his own private revelation and created the church of Mormon, but John Darby has his, hears about a private revelation and creates a whole system of doctrine on it. And it just gets, it just gets uh, uh, absorbed by Christian churches all over the country. Little things become big things quickly, like really, really quickly. And I don't want you to become a heresy hunter. That's not, I'm not giving you this podcast so that you become a heresy hunter. That's not what I'm, that's just going to make you cynical. There are authorities within the church and there's theologians who can do that and who can spell things out. Um, but you can see how things can be considered quote secondary and turn into something else. And so what I'm, what I'm actually asking one is, is learn from this man that small things become big things. Learn to defend the faith. Learn to be faithful. But don't be a rebel. Don't be a rebel either. It's good to submit your beliefs to what has been handed down, what has been historic, what has been true forever. Remember this quote. Faith is a personal act, the free response of the human person to the initiative of God who reveals himself. But faith is not an isolated act. No one can believe alone, just as no one can live alone. You have not given yourself faith as you have given, not given yourself life. The believer has received faith from others and should hand it on to others. Our love for Jesus and our neighbor impels us to speak to others about our faith, 
Each believer is thus a link in a great chain of believers. I cannot believe without being carried by the faith of others, and by my faith I support the others of the faith. All right, that was a long podcast, so we're going to skip our YouTube section today. We're just going to go into today's gospel coming from Matthew chapter 15. Great passage here. It's Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. Let me just read this to you. Then the Pharisees and the scribes, they came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he called people to him, and he said, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And that's the end of the passage. Okay, so first thing I want to point out about this, this passage, Jesus is not banning tradition. Not at all. He does not con- he condemns tradition that breaks commandments, but he doesn't condemn tradition. Traditions are good. Here's here's the definition of tradition. A tradition is the transmission of customs or beliefs from generation to generation or the fact of being passed on a certain way. So it's it's just taking beliefs from generation to generation. Tradition connects you with the past. It has a story attached to it. It has people attached to it. It has your heritage attached to it. It helps you understand your faith. It helps you understand what has been handed down. But there's still an order. The commandments of God are above tradition, but they're, they're not opposed. When they're opposed to each other, you have to go with the commandment. But hopefully, traditions are not opposed to each other. I'll give you a very simple example. <laughs> Christmas tree. That's a tradition. It's nothing. It's something that we do. It helps us understand. And there's like symbols with the Christmas tree and all that kind of stuff. There's there's this really really stupid movement in evangelicalism to remove all tradition from Christianity. And I, I hear about it all the time. There's even a song about getting rid of tradition. And I'm just gonna say, like, if you remove the roots, the tree falls over and dies. And as we saw today, the faith has been handed down from generation to generation. And how ungrateful are we to get rid of the traditions that have been handed down to us if they do not make void the word of God? And you can't like it it's really it it actually it makes me very sad that there's this belief that if we just get rid of everything in the past, then people might actually come to Jesus. And it's like Jesus saved all of those people and everything that they did and handed on was out of love for him and his church and God, the father, and it handed down to us. And we're just like out of it. But then there's the other side that I also want to talk about because there's this other thing that I current, I'm currently seeing a lot of And here. here, So I'm going to go, let's go with the passage first. It says every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Like God will uproot 
everything that has not been planted by him. That's a promise and that is a guarantee. Jesus said his church will always prevail, you know, and whatever has not been planted by God, the Father will not prevail. It will eventually be uprooted. So how do you know if something has been planted by God? Well, it lasts and it lasts and it lasts and it lasts. But even then, you don't want to cling to the thing that seems to last. You want to hold it like loosely. You want to be thankful for it because God could uproot it at any time. That could be a gift or a tradition for a time and a place, just like there's the people above. Um, the people above, you know, I said they want to get rid of tradition altogether, but there are people who believe, because um, they believe that um, tradition gets in the way of Jesus. You know, I said that, which I disagree with. But there's some who believe that Christianity is dying because we have forsaken our traditions and made Christianity too easy. Now, I'm inclined to agree but I don't believe that's the sole cause of Christianity's decline. I'm more apt to believe that the decline of Christianity is due to a failure to pass on the faith from generation to generation to some degree, whether it's through parenting or through you know other means, or a more an eagerness to start a church as a business instead of faithful to the gospel. And this could be about it could also be outsourcing education. We send our kids to school all the time, and they they have primary teachers that are not us. There's the two-income trap where both parents are so busy working that their kids learn from whoever's available. There's the internet, which makes access to the world easy. There's many factors for the decline in Christianity. I don't think you can say it's because we've gotten rid of all the traditions. I think that's contributed for sure. Something you can, I think you're clinging. I think we're clinging to that, hoping. That like, oh man, if we would have just not gotten rid of everything. People would still be Christians, just like the other people are saying, well, we should get rid of all of it so that people will become Christians. I I don't think either one is that God will uproot what God's going to uproot. But tradition is not opposed to the commandments. Traditions that are opposed to the commandments, yeah, get rid of. The rest of them help you hand down the faith from generation to generation, but we hold them with a loose hand. I want tradition to stay. I want more tradition. I like tradition. In my household growing up, if you did it once, it was a tradition. I want the fullness of what has been handed down, but I also know that God could remove it at any time. So we must cling to Jesus above all. We must cling to the gospel. We need to appreciate all that we have now and not to worry too much about what is to come because it just gets people all riled up. God has promised to uproot whatever he has not planted and you can trust him on that. That's all I have for you today. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. If you want to dive deeper into the Institute of Men, become a subscriber on instituteofmen.org. There you can sign up for my newsletter, choose a free or paid subscription, and then you'll receive exclusive content. Financial support of any kind is very much appreciated. If you didn't like this content, just pretend you didn't listen. That helps us out too. And until next time, I'm Keaton Tucker, and this is the Institute of Men podcast.